0: On July 5th, 1415, a 46-year-old John Huss sat in a lonely prison cell in a Franciscan friary. He had been imprisoned for seven months. The following morning at 6 o'clock, he would be burned for his crime. Huss penned a letter to his Christian brothers He reminded one brother to care for his wife. To another brother, he entrusted his cloak. He expressed his desire to see his countrymen, including the emperor who had broken his promise of protection to embrace the gospel. Huss penned a second letter, this time to the entire world, explaining what would become of him he would be martyred for his faith. But he was more than willing to die for the sake of Christ Jesus, his witness. Fifty doctors of the church, he said, had rebuked him before the council, but no one had ventured to correct a single one of his errors from the Scripture. Fifteen years earlier, Huss had been Begun dismantling the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. He had been deeply influenced by the writings of a man named John Wycliffe over in England. And he sought to see a similar reform in Prague that Wycliffe witnessed back in England. Huss was appointed pastor of Bethlehem Chapel and professor at the University of Prague. Soon he was the most famous preacher in a reform movement that swept through the country. Huss emphasized the need to conduct church services in the native bohemian tongue. Imagine that. He taught that marriage for the priest was acceptable, even desirable. Huss rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation whereby Christ was re-sacrificed again and again in every Mass. And Huss found the papal prerogative of remitting sins galling. Only God can forgive sins, not the Pope. Besides, for 37 years, the papacy had actually been divided between multiple people claiming to be the true pope. Huss decried the wealthy clergy who exchanged exorbitant fees for their parishioners who wished to see, to, to hear Mass. The priests, he claimed, were fornicators, parasites, and money misers. They were drunks whose bellies growled with excessive wine. He was not always very kind, I will say that. The next morning, Huss was brought back before the council. After Mass, from which he was excluded, a high stool was erected for the heretic in the middle of the church. The Bishop of London, who had come over, arose in judgment over the physically shrunken prisoner. He preached a long sermon from Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, that the body of sin may be destroyed. A little out of context. And he declared that the extermination of heretics was one of the works most pleasing to God. So what was Huss' crime? In a word, Insubordination he dared ask whether the scriptures were more authoritative than the church. Huss believed that the scriptures should be translated into the common tongue for the common man to read, and he doubted the infallibility of the Pope. The bishops of London and Rems then approached Huss, placing in his right hand an empty chalice, commanding him to drink from it, It was intended to signify his banishment from the holy communion of the church. Huss responded, according to his friend who was there on the scene, This chalice, though without wine, shall be filled with forgiveness before all people. If I lack bread because of the adversity of my enemies, the Lord Jesus Christ my God provides manna for me. Well, the outraged bishop stepped forward and dashed the chalice from his hand. They cursed the day of his ordination. Cursed be the spot upon which you have stood and groaned. Groan, they responded, not groaned. May your branches burn here and everywhere in the devil's eternal oven, you useless bush of thorns. We cast you out of the priestly brotherhood and hand you over to the hangman so that he may finish with you, evil creature, "...Akin to the poisonous snake, and make harmless your drooling fangs among the living. May the sun sorrow for the day on which it still might be said that Huss the monster is crawling on earth. To which Huss responded, Alas, drag my my poor carcass to death, so that you cannot sin any longer against an innocent victim." At this point, the jeering crowd began calling loudly for his execution. Some began to run toward Huss, stripping away what was left of the rags of his priestly robes. They would take those soiled rags and tie them to their own clothes, signifying their complete victory over the heretic. The crowd then rushed his half naked body outside the church. The bishop crowned the heretic with a paper mitre with three devils painted on it. An inscription on the mitre read, This is a heresy ark. The crowd rushed Huss right through the city. As he looked in front of him, he saw flames. His books were already burning in the town square. A red-clad gesture leaped over the fire like a wild fanatic, poking it here and there with his prong. He deliberately let his long tail catch on fire so he could mock Huss bellowing loudly for water. Across the bridge and out of town, a stake had been planted. The place of the execution was called the devil's place. Soldiers prevented the crowds from crossing the bridge lest it collapse under their weight. And they watched from the far bank as Huss knelt down and prayed, over the tumult, Husk cried out, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. And to the executioner, he claimed, God is my witness that the principal intention of my preaching and of all my other acts or writings was solely that I might turn men from sin. And in that truth of the gospel that I wrote, taught, and preached in accordance with the sayings and expositions of the holy doctors, I am willing gladly to die today. The executioner then set his torch to the rosin-drenched pyre, and the flames quickly encircled the martyr. Twice he sang out, Christ, thou Son of living God, have mercy upon me. And then the singing ceased, and the crowd could see him no longer. A dense cloud of smoke obscured him to their view. When the smoke parted, they saw his head slump down against his chest. He was dead already. Fire consumed his body, and the executioners gathered his ashes and cast them into the Rhine River." Friends, are we surprised by the animosity of the world, even the religious world, toward us? Well, actually, Jesus warned us not to be surprised. Let's return to John chapter 15 this morning. Jesus is in the upper room, and he is warning his disciples about what is to come. Huss's story actually can be retold thousands of times in many parts of the world. To this present hour, there are Christians who are laying down their lives for their conviction that Jesus Christ is God, crucified and resurrected. There are Christians in Gaza today that will lose their lives. When Christian Wei was here recently, he reported on the continuing persecution of Christians in China. And we should not be surprised by any of this. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I pointed out last week that in the upper room, Jesus has offered words of rebuke. He also offered words of comfort. And he also gave us words of exhortation. However, beginning with verse 18, Jesus now offers also words of warning. He himself will be crucified because he is hated by the world. If that's true, what should his disciples expect? Well, let's take up our reading again, then with verse 18. If the world hates you, But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning." last week we got a good start on this passage, making it all the way down to verse 20. We also looked at an extended example from church history in the person of Adoniram Judson. And I pointed out that the disciples likely do not understand the full magnitude of Jesus' words. And I said that for two reasons. First of all, the disciples do not comprehend the suffering that Jesus himself was about to endure. And secondly, both along the road to Jerusalem, even right up into the upper room, the disciples argued among themselves over who was to be greatest in the kingdom. And their argument betrayed a severe misunderstanding of the opposition of the world toward the true kingdom of God. And Jesus must just reorient their expectations. Now in verse 18, Jesus speaks of the world hating both the believer and Jesus Christ himself if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you and friends that has been true just all the way through church history for a moment would you consider the immediate context of the persecution that was actually afflicted on Jesus during his ministry every time that Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, the world opposed him. But who is the world? Well, if you recall, last year at Easter, Dr. Pettit preached, and he said this, it was the best of humanity who crucified Jesus. It was the Jewish leadership who immersed themselves in the Scriptures that crucified Jesus. It was the Pharisees who memorized God's law who crucified Jesus. It was the Sadducees and the scribes who spent their entire academic careers pouring over the Pentateuch and the prophets who crucified Jesus. It was some of the most religiously zealous people in world history who crucified Jesus. And it was the guardians of the temple and the teachers of the law who crucified Jesus. That was the world. So if the religious world persecuted Jesus, do not be surprised if the religious world persecutes his followers. In fact, some of the greatest opposition that Christians can receive will often come from other Christians' so-called and that's precisely what happened to John Huss. He fell victim to the medieval religious ecclesiastical authorities. Sometimes people who name the name of Christ can be the most vicious, the most vocal, and the most antagonistic people toward good Christianity. So how do you explain this opposition then? Well, look at verse 21. Jesus said, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Again and again in John's Gospel, Jesus insists that he came from the Father. He and the Father are one. But do the Jews know the Father? No. Therefore, it's impossible for them to understand who Jesus is. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man at the Pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And Jesus claimed that both he and the Father were working on the Sabbath. What do you mean? Would God the Father actually heal on the Sabbath? Yes, of course he would. Now sure, he gave us a pattern of Sabbath rest... But that does not prevent him from helping a man in genuine need on the Sabbath. But the Jews were so committed to their legalistic Sabbath culture that they did not know the God who would show mercy on the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus said, they're seeking to kill me. So Jesus' point in verse 21 is that to reject Jesus is indeed to reject God himself, whom they do not know. Now, verse 22 serves to further condemn the Jews of their sin for rejecting God. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, let's interpret this very carefully. Jesus is not saying the Jews would have continued in some sort of sinless state of perfection had he never shown up. It's not what he's saying. When he refers to them being guilty of sin, he's referring specifically to their controlling sin of rejection. Specifically, the rejection of God's revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jews, like all humans, are born sinners. Paul in Romans 1 through 3 argues that all people, Jews, Gentiles alike, were all guilty before God. All right? But there was one particular sin that manifested itself only after God revealed himself in Jesus. That particular sin was the rejection of the revelation of God in Jesus. Think about it. One could not commit that particular sin before the incarnation. But now that Jesus had clearly revealed himself, the Jews have no excuse. They had no good excuse for rejecting the revelation of God and Jesus Christ, who stood right there in their midst, healing their sick living a sinless life, preaching the truth, and pointing them right back to God. Now, once again, be very, very cautious in how you interpret this. There were indeed things about Jesus the disciples themselves and even John the Baptist did not fully understand. I pointed that out many, many times. But the difference is this. They hung on to Jesus despite their misunderstanding They were willing to keep on learning. They didn't reject him. But many Jews did not merely reject Jesus. They actually hated him. They despised him. They were not willing to learn anything more. We're done with him. They seek only his crucifixion. They wouldn't even consider the possibility that God had revealed himself in some way through Jesus That's the rejection that Jesus condemns. Now, to hate Jesus, friends, is to hate God. Look at verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. And this is an extremely important clarification. If one hates the revelation of God in Jesus Christ... He necessarily hates God. When God reveals himself in a person and you hate that person, then you hate God. Now remember what Jesus told Philip back in John chapter 14 and verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? The disciples had some misunderstanding, but then Jesus said this, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Well, what would the revelation of God in a human body actually look like? Exactly like Jesus. Therefore, to hate Jesus is to hate God the Father. That's what Jesus said. Now again, be cautious. Philip himself did not fully comprehend who Jesus was, obviously, But that's not the crime that Jesus is speaking of. Philip continued to follow Jesus and wanted to learn more. He didn't forsake him. But others hated everything about Jesus. They sought only his death by crucifixion. So to hate Jesus, to just reject him out of hand, is indeed to hate God. If Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, and you hate everything about him, well, then you are hating God, whether you recognize it or not. Now, verse 24, then, is a further explanation of the truth of verses 22 and 23. The Jews were specifically guilty of the sin of rejecting the revelation of God in Jesus. So, verse 24, here's further revelation. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Now once again, Jesus is not saying they were guiltless before the Incarnation. But He is claiming after the Incarnation, they become guilty of the particular sin of rejection. Jesus came and He performed certain works that no prophet before Him performed And these works clearly demonstrated that he was from God. But, because they rejected these works, they were guilty of sin, particularly the sin of rejection. Now, let's clarify. Prophets before Jesus had performed miracles. They had done works. Nevertheless, Jesus' works were in many ways... Unique. His works probably refer to more than just his miracles, but they certainly include his miracles. So let's consider for just a moment three ways in which Jesus' miracles were truly unique. First, Jesus' miracles were unique in their diversity and quantity. Unlike Moses or Elijah, Jesus rapidly performed all sorts of miracles, an extraordinary variety. Jesus turned water to wine, multiplied loaves and fish, cast out demons, opened blind eyes, loosed the tongue of the mute, healed the paralytic, cursed, uh, cured leprosy and fever, commanded the lame to walk, walked on water, opened the ears of the death, stretched out the withered hand, raised the dead to life, and many, many other works. That's a lot of works. Matthew 4 and verse 23 says, He went throughout all Galilee, healing, listen to this, every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew 9, verse 35, "...and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, healing every disease and every affliction. Even days earlier in Matthew 21, and verse 14, "...and the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them." Jesus healed anything and everything, and He never ran out of power, regardless of the numbers who flocked to Him. No matter how difficult the ailment, Jesus healed it effortlessly. In fact, in Mark 9, when the disciples failed to heal a possessed boy, falling to the ground, foaming at the mouth, and grinding his teeth, Jesus just healed him like that. In Matthew 12, Jesus was confronted with a particularly difficult case. Here was a man who was demon oppressed, and blind, and mute. And Jesus just healed him effortlessly. All to say, Jesus' miracles were unique and their diversity and quantity. In fact, scholar B.B. Warfield wondered whether there were any sick people left anywhere in Galilee at the conclusion of Jesus' ministry. And even those who needed no physical healing, guess what? They got bread and they got fish. Miraculously supplied. And that brings us to a second uniqueness. Jesus assume that power to perform miracles was latent within himself. Unlike earlier prophets who drew their power from God, a power source outside of themselves, Jesus assumes the power is within himself. In fact, right here in verse 24, Jesus said, If I, look at the I, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, these were his works, Jesus' power was not derivative, it came from within. After healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus said, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So yes, God sent Jesus to perform miracles, but when he performs those miracles, this is Jesus, I'm doing these things, he says. Now, when Peter and John healed the man at the temple gate, they called upon the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, before commanding the man to walk. Jesus never summoned outside power. And thirdly, Jesus performed some unique miracles that no other prophet performed. For example, we saw this back in John chapter 9 on an earlier trip to Jerusalem that Jesus made Jesus dramatically healed a man who was born blind. And that man in John chapter 9 came to understand the true significance of that miracle. And he exclaimed, while he's being interrogated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. That miracle was never performed in the Old Testament. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The man figures it out. This man must be from God because we've never heard of this particular miracle. Curiously, the Psalms tell us that God opens blind eyes. And Isaiah tells us the opening of blind eyes will be a distinct messianic sign. And the blind man saw the truth. Jesus was from God, but the Pharisees were too blind to understand, therefore they are guilty. Now, those three considerations just really reinforce Jesus' claim in verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. They've seen the revelation of God through the miracles, and they hate me. Jesus did things that no one else did. And therefore, to reject Him is to be guilty of the particular sin of the rejection of the revelation of God in Jesus. Now, friends, don't be surprised by this rejection. And don't assume this rejection somehow jeopardizes God's plan of redemption God actually saw it coming. The Old Testament actually predicted it. Look at verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Friends, God saw all this rejection coming. He knew it. The Jews hated God's Messiah. But this is no setback for God. He predicted it. Now understand the word law is sometimes used not merely for the Pentateuch, but for the entire Old Testament. And the quotation, they hated me without a cause, is actually taken from two Psalms. Psalm 35 and verse 19, and Psalm 69 and verse 4. David was actually hated without a cause, and David was a typological anticipation of his greater son. People would hate David's son for no good reason. So don't be surprised that they reject Jesus. And don't be surprised when people, by extension, hate his disciples for no good reason. You know, Christians sometimes can become very, very discouraged by their gospel witness when it just falls flat. When your gospel witness falls onto that rocky soil or is choked out by the weeds, it can be very, very discouraging. So can we take a moment and just really apply this? Often we go looking for some good reason for people's hostility toward Jesus and toward us. But look at the text. They hated me, verse 25, without a cause. In other words, there may not be a good explanation. We really want the world to be rational. Do we not? We want a rational, logical explanation, and we want to understand why the world acts the way it does and why the world rejects the good news of salvation. In an academic community like ours, we have professors from four different universities in our church membership, We like solving problems and providing solutions and good explanations, right? That's what professors do. But understand, the world crucified Jesus for no good reason. They hated me without a cause. So don't be surprised by the vehement hatred of the world. Friends, you might have a perfectly rational, scientific, apologetic case for believing in Jesus... Oh, and to suffer rejection. Like, why? There may not be a good reason. And further, friends, you may live a morally upright life in your community. And you might find yourself rejected and scorned by the world. And you're going to ask, why? And Jesus' answer is, there is no good reason. So imagine a person trying to live the life of Jesus, trying to live out his beatitudes. Here's a woman who's humble, poor in spirit, nothing pompous or arrogant about her. She mourns. She knows how to truly sympathize with all the frustration, all the hurting, broken people around her. She sorrows right alongside her devastated friends who are going through tragedy. She's meek. A meek person is someone who uses her talents and abilities in the service of others. Putting your talents to work in service of the king to serve other people, that's meekness. She hungers and she thirsts after righteousness. Her actions are just and true. No one can accuse her of unrighteousness. And she's merciful. She shows kindness to all those around her, helping the afflicted, helping the needy. She rushes to help the sick and care for the crying child and support the failing bodies of the elderly. She is a merciful person. And actually, when you go looking inside her heart, you would describe her as pure and hard. There's no guile. There's no self-interest, no pride in her actions. She just serves others. And she's a peacemaker. She knows how to go in when there's warring factions and just settle everybody down. She's living out the Beatitudes. Well, don't you suppose the world would just love a person like that? I mean, my guess would be, yeah, everybody's going to love her. She'll be the most famous person in the whole community. But friends, if that is true, then explain why Jesus adds a final beatitude. In fact, the only beatitude that he repeats for emphasis. Here it is. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, blessed are you when others revile you. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, friends, what happens when somebody goes out and just lives the Beatitudes, full of the Holy Spirit? Well, would you say that Jesus' whole life was a perfect expression of the Beatitudes. In fact, the only perfect expression of the Beatitudes. And yet, they persecuted Him without a cause. So if the world cannot recognize the goodness of Jesus, do not be surprised when the world equally rejects His followers if they hated Me without a cause. Don't be surprised if the world hates you too. Don't be shocked when you read the life of John Huss. Now friends, this week's sermon and last week's have been a little difficult. We really don't enjoy hearing preaching about the world hating us. And believe me, I have to think about it all week long as I prepare to preach. I actually don't anticipate all week long. I can't wait to get back and preach on the world hating us. It's going to be great. You know, I was sitting there this morning just loving the songs, and I thought, man, I've got to preach on the world hating us after these wonderful songs that we're singing. <laughs> but friends, if the thought of opposition is hard to bear, here's what Jesus does. He comes back to us a third time with His third promise of a coming helper. That's right there in verses 26 and 27. This is the third reference that Jesus now makes in the upper room to the Holy Spirit but when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, we'll clarify this next week. But let me just point out that the chapter break between chapters 15 and 16 is a bit arbitrary. Chapters 16, 1 through 4, will actually continue the theme of opposition that believers can expect to receive from the world. And in chapter 16, 5 through 11, Jesus develops the role of the coming helper, the Holy Spirit. So the chapter divisions, again, may be helpful in helping you navigate the text, but they're not given by inspiration. So Jesus is actually going to continue right in the chapter 16 with these same themes. And again, we will come to the Holy Spirit next week would you just observe how these verses 26 and 27 are situated in the texts? Back in chapter 15, 22 through 25, Jesus speaks of the world's rejection and hatred of himself. Okay? Then chapter 16, 1 through 4, Jesus warns his followers, they're going to cast you out of the synagogues. They will kill you, assuming that they're pleasing God. Well, how on earth will that kind of hostility toward Jesus and toward His followers ever be overcome? I mean, they're about to crucify Jesus. If they're going to burn, husk the stake for preaching the gospel, how do we ever hope to turn the world right back to Christ amidst all this hostility? Well, what's the answer? It's verses 26 and 27. Right there in the middle is the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit working within us, keeping us on mission, regardless of any opposition that comes. This is the same Holy Spirit, friends, that descended on Jesus at His baptism. This is the same Holy Spirit that drove Him into the wilderness and sustained Him through 40 days of blistering, satanic temptation. And this is the same Holy Spirit that Jesus says is coming to you. How on earth will we ever convince a rebellious world to embrace Jesus? Well, if if you think that you're going to do that independently of the Holy Spirit, friends, you are deluding yourself. That will not happen. They rejected Jesus. Do you really think you can make a better case for Jesus than Jesus? Seriously? Here's some good news. Let's just conclude by reading chapter 16, 8 through 11, and let these be the final application of the sermon. Here's what we can expect when the Spirit comes. And when He comes, and He came at Pentecost, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is coming and he is the solution to a world that rejects Jesus Christ and his followers. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that we live in a time when the Spirit has come. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to rely on your Spirit And Lord, it may be that some of our church people experience opposition this very week. Opposition in the workplace. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them, empower them, help them to recognize that Jesus himself was opposed. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep us full of your spirit, that you would keep us loving Christ. And Lord, that His Spirit will work in our own hearts, and that Your Spirit will work in the people with whom we interact this week. For the sake of the glory of Your Son, we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.